Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Balagan. Most Israelis agree that Israel going to a fourth election term in two years proves that the Israeli system of government is failing. Along with my guest, Dr. Reynat Wilf, we will discuss where are we really failing and what Israeli decision makers really need to focus on. Dr. Wilf is an author and a leading thinker, policy, economics, education, Israel and Zionism. She was a member of the Israeli parliament from 2010 to 2013, where she served as chair of the education committee and member of the influential foreign affairs and defense committee. Dr. Wilf is also the author of the book, It's Not the Electoral System, Dummy, explaining why Israel's political problems lie somewhere else. So welcome to my podcast, Dr. Thank Wilf. And you. I'm really happy to have you here. Maybe we should start with a short brief on the Israeli parliamentary system and how it works. Sure. So uh, Israel's parliamentary system, which is... quite typical of all uh, parliamentary systems and democracies, is based on a parliament in Israel called the Knesset. In Israel, we have only one house. Most parliamentary systems have two houses. We have a Knesset with 120 members who are elected uh, based on uh, them being a part of political parties. Like in every parliamentary system, The government of the country is voted in by the parliament. It is not directly elected by the people, but it is actually elected by the parliament. So the people, the citizens of Israel, vote for parties that then make up the Israeli Knesset, the Israeli parliament. And then the 120 members of the Israeli Knesset vote for a government. which means in order for Israel to have a government, the government has to have the support of the members of parliament, of the majority of the members of parliament, which means at least 61. So the magic number in Israeli politics is 61, a one-person majority of the 120-member Knesset. And as in all parliamentary systems, the government only governs as long as it has the support of parliament. As long as it is has in Israel, as long as it has the support of 61 members, if it loses that support, we go to early elections. Otherwise, elections are about once every four years. Technically, if it loses the majority, or in our case, like what happened uh, 
at the end of December this year is that eventually the Knesset didn't vote for a budget, which is also in a basic law. If a budget doesn't pass, then the Knesset actually dissolve itself. True. Right? As a result of many crises that had to do with passing the budget, basically the Knesset introduced a law, a fundamental law, which by the way, it could change, but a law which was basically intended to be a kind of incentive or a deadline that basically told members of Knesset, if you're not going to pass the budget, that's your job. So if you're not doing it, you lose your job and you go home and we go to new elections. Now, the Knesset can change the law. I mean, the Knesset is the supreme sovereign body of the nation. But ever since that law was enacted, it served as a pretty effective whip to get uh, members of Knesset to pass budgets. Yeah. <laughs> but not this well, time. Not this time. So... Many Israelis are frustrated with the fact that we're going to a fourth election term in two years, which makes us look like a flawless democracy. Why are we really going to a fourth election term? We will get to why do you think it's not the system, but I want to understand with you where the flaws lie. So I will give the broad picture and I will give the Israeli picture. The broad picture of why we're going to a fourth election is that clearly the world is undergoing a global crisis, which has to do with technology, with rising inequality. And you're seeing that all democracies in one way or another are subjected to what was uh, done to the banks during the 2008 crisis, a stress test. Basically, all democracies are now going through very intensive stress tests. Not only democracies, it's, it's a global phenomena. The massive changes in technology and economics are really challenging governance systems worldwide. And in every country, this crisis is manifested in different ways, from the U.S. with its own issues to Brexit to our little piece of the land. So one of the things sometimes I find is a problem in Israel is we utterly lack international perspective. We think our problems are so incredibly unique. But in truth, we're part of a global phenomena, and this is our version of the global crisis. So this is the broad explanation. With respect to Israel, we are experiencing a crisis that has to do with the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu is, on the one hand, a popular prime minister and also a very effective politician capable of putting together coalitions. So he gets support to be a prime minister, but for quite some time now, he doesn't want to be prime minister anymore. He wants something more. If Netanyahu only wanted to be prime minister, we would not have gone into a fourth election. The problem is that ever since Netanyahu has been under legal proceedings and now under indictment for uh, charges of bribery and corruption and a breach of the public trust, ever since this happened, Netanyahu, and by the way, many of his supporters believe that this process is a form of efforts by his opponents to use the legal system to get him out of power because his opponents are unable to do it politically. 
They're unable to secure 61 votes for an alternative prime minister. So they're trying to oust him through legal means. And there's a lot of people who share this worldview. As a result, Netanyahu is trying to get not just the regular 61-member majority to form a government, that he had in every election. He had it every time. What he's trying to get is 61 members who will vote for retroactive laws that will basically get him out of the legal process. And for that, he hasn't been able to get the vote. So he's been able to get people to support him for prime minister, but not to support his desire to get out of the legal process, certainly not through legislation. And this is at least the reason that he's been repeatedly pushing to repeated elections. He's basically what he's doing. He keeps throwing the dice in the hope that he will finally land 61 votes to get him out of the trial rather than just 61 votes to be prime minister. I want to ask you another question, because uh, actually one of the things that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is doing and a lot of his uh, Likud members are actually saying the same things is that the supreme law is always narrowing down the government's uh, ability to act. And on the other hand, what we now know as the deep state, you know, that all of the state officials are actually also stopping the government from executing uh, policies. Isn't that a part of what they're saying about a problem with governments in Israel and the efficiency of the government? So I'm separating it to a few things. There is the traditional claim by any governing power that the civil service is preventing them from implementing their policy. And when people think that this is a unique Israeli problem, I always remind people that, yes, prime minister was written in the U.K., And yes, Prime Minister, of course, is all about the civil service not enabling politicians to do their job. So this is a steady complaint of every government. And in that sense, I think it's, you know, it's yes, Prime Minister. It's a permanent feature of any bureaucracy and any political system. And in many ways, by the way, it serves both sides. I mean, politicians love to blame the civil service for their inability to act. So this is something that I absolutely do not take seriously. It's a permanent feature. It's always been there. Everyone complains. That's how the system is built, to have this balance between politics and civil service. And by and large, the balance in Israel is actually quite in favor of the politicians. Politicians in Israel are fairly powerful. And the government in Israel has a lot of ability to execute policy if they decide to. But as I said, sometimes they enjoy having excuses. That's one thing. There is the grander debate about whether what's sometimes called the old elites, uh, the first Israel, second Israel. So the kind of the notion that the old elites that used to govern the country have not come to terms with the fact that they have lost power to the new elites or to sometimes what's called second Israel. And as a result, since they are failing to exercise power through numbers, which is in the parliament, in parliament they don't have the numbers, they are trying to exercise power through places where they still have dominance. 
like especially the legal system. And that's the other theory, which a lot of people subscribe to, that the legal proceedings against Netanyahu to oust a prime minister that is much beloved by the new elites, and because they fail to do so via parliament, via numbers, via the political means, they're trying to do so legally. This is a sociological issue. It's not conspiratorial. It's not any of the deep state stuff. It's a real sociological debate. You have a lot of serious people on both sides of this issue, but it's a serious issue whether those who have lost power in parliament are now trying to exercise power via places that they still have control. Yeah, that's actually a subject to another episode about Israel Arishona and Israel Ashnia, the first Israel and the second Israel. But it works for the politician, by the way. It works great for some of them. But if that's not the problem, because Netanyahu was able to re-elect six times now in a row, and four of the times he was able to form a government. And he's ruling for more than 12 years, consecutive years, and almost 16 years in overall. So in one way, it says that uh, it's not the system that doesn't work. So where are the flaws? I mean, what are the crucial problems that we're having that lie beneath the surface or not beneath the surface? Maybe somebody has the interest to hide them. So uh, many years ago, when I wrote the book, It's Not the Electoral System Dummy, I wrote it because I realized I had been working previously as an advisor to Shimon Peres on foreign policy. And I attended many meetings with him and uh, foreign uh, dignitaries. And I noticed that he would complain, right? This is Shimon Paris. He would <laughs> complain about the Israeli electoral system and how he could not get anything done, which also teaches you something. A person who has many of the achievements of Israel yeah. complains about not being able to do enough. So he would complain. And it was always amusing to see that his foreign counterparts, whether French or American or British, would also complain. So they would complain about their own system. And I remember that at one point I thought, okay, this is a classic, the grass is greener situation. You know, it seems that everyone's complaining. Yeah. So I started to research it and that led to the book where I basically showed that by any measure, Israel's electoral system is absolutely fine. And I looked at all the claims that have been placed against the system for many, many years. And basically, I showed empirically that on every measure, we are either average or we even outperform other democracies. But there's nothing in our system that is, first of all, unique or uniquely problematic. So that was uh, the main conclusion of the book. And then I said, okay, so where are the problems? If it's not the electoral system, and the book was also intended, and I think to some extent uh, succeeded, to basically take the issue off the table. It used to be a huge issue where everyone would promise a change to the electoral system. And I was like, no, 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 absolutely. Like anyone who's trying to sell you that doesn't understand anything, and they're not dealing with the real issues. So what are the real issues? So the real issues, I like to joke, but it's not really a joke, is that the Jewish people 
have decided to build a modern state after spending nearly two millennia in exile in their ancient homeland, which by now happens to be in the middle of an Arab and Islamic region. So my argument is that this is our problem. And everything that we deal with goes back to that. So questions, for example, of religion and state. A lot of people think that questions of religion and state in Israel or what I call Judaism in the public sphere have to do with the electoral system. Absolutely not. They have to do with the fact that we have created something called a Jewish state after 2,000 years where the Jews did not have a state, where they were not accustomed to being sovereign. Secularism in Jewish life is only, what, 100, 200 years old at best? It's a relatively new phenomenon in Jewish life. So these are ancient struggles and conflicts The thought that any of these issues would somehow disappear under a different electoral system have no basis. The issue of Israel's borders, the settlements, another issue that sometimes people say, oh, if we had a different electoral system, we would solve it. No, the issue of war and peace in our borders has to do with the fact that the Arab world has to come to terms with the insane project of this reestablishment of a Jewish state in their midst after 2,000 years. It was never going to be easy. Again, that's not an issue of the electoral system. So my argument is that we have undertaken a massive project in, in Zionism in building a Jewish state after 2,000 years, and there are a lot of problems that come from that. And it's not about an electoral system. If anything... In the book, this was just an initial thought, but by now I'm absolutely convinced of it. If anything, our electoral system has been our saving grace. Because we have a highly representative parliament where very religious Jews, ultra-Orthodox, even anti-Zionist religious Jews, and anti-Zionist Arabs, and secular Jews, and everyone in the middle all have a voice. I think this has been the reason that we've actually been able to sustain by now one of the world's oldest continuous democracies, despite the wars, the terrorism, the waves of immigration, the battles over religion and state. The fact that we held it together, I think, has a lot to do uh, with the fact that we have a parliamentary system that is highly representative. So... You brought up a lot of points, and one of the things you were talking about, the diversity in the Knesset, some people will argue that uh, you can have a parliamentary system with uh, two to three parties. You know, like in Germany, for example, they have a threshold of 5%. We have now 3.25%, but you don't think that we have too many parties that one can, you know, get too much power, especially the smaller parties? That's one of the things that Israelis are upset about. I mean, not all Israelis, but, uh, you know, from the big parties, especially secular Jews. Yeah. So first of all, I examined this empirically. And let's start with this. Every electoral system gives disproportionate power. Who are the groups that get disproportionate power? They're not small parties in the Knesset. That's not. Disproportionate power goes to groups that are well-organized, 
disciplined, focused on a single issue or a very limited set of issues, and are willing to pursue that in the long term. This is the characteristic of groups who get disproportionate power. In America, you would call them special interests. So in every country, in every electoral system, there is disproportionate power for those groups. But in Israel, I think one of the things that's characteristic of the Israeli system, because it's so representative, is that our problems are above the table. In a lot of electoral systems, the problems are below the table. So for example, it's well known by now and empirically demonstrated that basically the American Congress is not in the hands of the American people, it's in the hands of special interests. But it's below the table, not above the table. A lot of research had to go in order to show that. So this is characteristic. And I always tell people, okay, let's say you raise the threshold, I don't know, 20%. And by the way, the fact that we have a low threshold and we used to have even lower, and I'm in favor of going back to lower, is that we really gave voice to everyone. That was part of Zionism. Why does Germany have a high threshold that's even higher than 5% because it's regional too? Because of the Nazis. Why does uh, Turkey have a 10% threshold? Because it doesn't want the Kurds to get representation. So first of all, I think it's great that we give everyone voice. And as I said, I think it's been critical to our ability to sustain ourselves as a democracy despite all the challenges. But people don't disappear when you raise the threshold. Let's say you raise it to 20%. All the small parties have to disappear. Let's say secular Israelis will finally not have to see ultra-Orthodox Haredi parties in the Knesset. What, Haredis are going to disappear? They're going to go home and say, oh, darn it, uh, the threshold is 20%. We're just going to go home. No, they're going to reorganize themselves into the new system. So you're going to have in each one of the three parties, you're going to have a major Haredi bloc that this time under the table will ensure that no matter which government is established and which party is in power, their interests are secured. Because again, the disproportional power goes to well-organized, disciplined, single-issue, long-term thinking groups. That's it. It's a sad story, but there's no shortcuts. So if you want to have power, be well-organized, disciplined, focus on key issues and think for the long term. That's it. There's no magic that will make those groups not have disproportionate power. Well, you're mentioning under the table and the interest groups, for example, in the U.S. And actually, if we're talking about interest groups and transparency, one of the claims is that the Israeli system is hiding behind security, uh, I would say excuses or not posting the policies and the policy making. And maybe that's something that also hurts the stability of the government because it brings a lot of criticism. I don't think this has anything to do with stability. And again, empirically, Israel is a very stable democracy. In the book, I looked at it at various levels. So first of all, at the broadest level as a democracy, Israel is one of the world's oldest continuous democracies. We think of ourselves as a young country, but as a continuous democracy that never had a civil war or a military coup, we're one of the oldest continuous democracies in the world. 
A lot of people, when they hear that, they say, ah, that can't be. But then I remind them, look, you pretty much write off all of Asia, all of Eastern Europe, all of Africa, right. uh, Latin America. Uh, <laughs> so you're not left with many countries that have been in with democracies for long. And Israel is actually one of the oldest ones by now. So in terms of stability, we're a very stable democracy. In terms of the Knesset, our parliaments, until the last two years, we've had very stable parliaments that were elected for, on average, more than three and a half years, almost four. Also, our governments actually are very stable. You talked about Netanyahu. He's getting close to Merkel in terms of stability uh, in government. But we've had uh, fewer prime ministers since 1949 than the U.K., Uh, fewer prime ministers than America had presidents. So Israel is actually very, very stable comparatively. Again, everything is comparative to other democracies. So there's no question of stability. You're absolutely right that in general, the role of the Israeli military is dominant in Israel, but you could say it's a positive development that this is changing. I mean, by and large, we're seeing that the role of the Israeli military in general is less in Israel than it used to be as a result of many positive developments, most of them being that there are fewer and fewer wars. And also, you know, as a result, there's fewer people going. The prestige of the military in politics is certainly not what it used to be. So you're right. Uh, you're right that in terms of the balance between Israel as a civic society and the importance of the military, there were periods where the military was far, far more powerful and dominant. Now it's much less. But at the end of the day, let's go back to the key issue. The key issue is the Jewish people reestablished their homeland in what was at this point a hostile territory. It was not going to be easy. They were going to have to be a fighting society. So I have one last question because unfortunately our time is almost up for this episode. But I will say that, I mean, we have a lot more to talk about, not only about the Israeli governance system, but also about other books that you wrote and other researches that you had. And I will also post, by the way, your website. Dr. Wilf has a great website with a lot of researches and her work. I want to ask you one last question about constitution, because many say that if Israel had a constitution, and that goes a long way to the early days of Israel, then we wouldn't have the problem. But instead, we have the basic laws, and it doesn't really function. We saw it with the last government when uh, Netanyahu and Gantz agreed to change the basic law of the government and the Knesset to form some new positions and to play with the budget as well. Yeah. So... What's your uh, view about that? So already in the book, I came solidly against the idea of a constitution. First of all, it's important to understand Israel is a constitutional democracy. You do not need to have a constitution to be a constitutional democracy in the sense that Israel has all the elements that characterize constitutional democracies in terms of the separation of power, the legal part, the protection for minorities. And like the UK, like New Zealand, it is a constitutional democracy without a written constitution. You do not need to have a written constitution to be considered a constitutional democracy. And of course, vice versa. There are countries with beautiful constitutions 
that are not countries you want to necessarily live in. <laughs> so there's no relationship between the kind of country you have and the governance and the actual existence of a constitution. Now, the thing is this. Constitutions are typically written at key moments, defining moments of a nation's life, independence, birth. It's not something that you can write when you're already alive, when you're in the midst of being a nation. You know, it was said that if the Americans had to write a constitution today, they would never be able to write something that is as short and as elegant as what they have because they already know all the implications. So they would never be able to agree on anything. Constitutions, contrary to the view that they are agreed upon documents, they're typically documents written at defining moments at a nation's life, typically its birth and independence. Israel has a constitutional-like document which reflects that moment, its Declaration of Independence, which reflects basically Israel's ideals, what it wants to be, why it exists, what its purpose is. I think there will only be one more moment when Israel might have such a moment to write a constitutional-like document, and that is the day that Israel has final borders and has peace with all its neighbors. That can be such a defining moment because as soon as Israel has final borders, it's clear who's in, who's out, where Israel begins, where Israel ends. We settled the debate over the borders. Then you can conceive maybe of having a constitution. And in any case, I don't think it's necessary. As I said, we maintained ourselves as a constitutional democracy, one of the oldest in the world, without having a constitution. And there's no way to write a constitution when you are already in the business of being a living, breathing nation and country. We might have such an opportunity one day when we have peace and defined borders. And even then, I don't think it's necessary. And I really don't think it matters. I will add another question. I mean, because it's connected to the constitution, what we see in the U.S. today, everybody's talking about checks and balances between the legislator, the executive branch, and the Supreme Court. What do you have to say about that? Because many say that since we don't have a constitution, the checks and balances in the Israeli system are less uh, structured and are uh, weakening the system. So first of all, again, it's empirically not true. All parliamentary systems with and without constitutions, whether it's the UK, New Zealand, or the continental countries, they have the same structure. Government governs only as long as it has the support of parliament. So all parliamentary systems do not have a separate executive from parliament. Government is the executive, but it governs on behalf of parliament. Not only is that typical of all parliamentary systems, parliamentary systems are the most stable democracies. Presidential systems where you separate the executive completely from the parliament are actually less stable and more prone to uh, devolve into authoritarian regimes or military coups. So parliamentary democracies are actually more stable democracies. So in that sense, you already have a proof in the pudding of checks and balances. Israel has a very strong court. The legal system obviously is in constant uh, back and forth, tug and pull of power. 
But it's the same in America, even though you have a constitution. You don't think they constantly define and redefine the balance of power between the three branches? It's the same everywhere. It changes with time, with technology, with historical development. But there's nothing in the system itself or in the lack of a constitution that says that there's no checks and balances. There are checks and balances. And again, the proof is in the pudding. They have been in effect very successfully for over 70 years. Well, I have a lot, you know, a lot more questions, <laughs> but uh, it will have to wait for another episode. I really want to thank you, Dr. Will, for enlightening sure. us and to sharing your wisdom about it. And I really hope that your book will be published in English at one point, because I think it's interesting, especially for people who love Israeli politics and want to understand better what's happening. So once again, thank you very much for joining me today. And uh, thank, thank you, you for listeners. <laughs> thank you. See you in the next episode. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.